1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. I just spoke with Ian Miller about his new book, The Nature of the Beasts, Empire and Exhibition at the Tokyo Imperial Zoo. This came out just this year in 2013 with the University of California Press. It's a fabulous book to read for many reasons. On the one hand, it is just a pleasure um, to read the stories, the kind of language, and the really, as you'll see um, coming up later in the conversation, very emotionally evocative nature of some of the descriptions that both humanize and visceralize and make very, very powerfully present the stories of not just the people but also the creatures, the animals, the children that were involved in the story of this history of a very particular zoo in Japan in the 19th and early 20th centuries. At the same time, it's an exploration of the ways that what uh, Miller calls ecological modernity emerged in the context of really transforming social, cultural, political ways of dealing with the mobilization for war, the realities of war, and then the ways that Japanese society dealt with the post-war context, all in the context of this particular locus, this particular zoological garden, the Ueno Zoo, in which we can see transformations of not just conceptions of what an animal was and how it related to notions of humanity and the physical realities of life and death and humanity, but also revisioning notions of what a child was. What an ecology was, what it meant to see literally through glass and also figuratively other individuals, be they human of various sorts or non-human, be they colonial or not be they adult or child, be they living or dead. It's a wonderfully rich story. I learned a ton here. And it was also quite a pleasure to talk with Ian about it. Um, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. I hope you go out and read the book. And this is one that's equally informative and suited for those of you who are interested in Japanese history or East Asian history, and also those of you who may not know anything or much about Japan, but are interested in animal histories, zoo histories, and the histories of science. We're here today to talk with Ian Jared Miller about his new book, The Nature of the Beasts, Empire and Exhibition at the Tokyo Imperial Zoo. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ian, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with me this afternoon about your really fabulous new book. It was a pleasure to read, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it.
0: Oh, thank you, Carla. I'm really happy to be here.
1: So could you start us off by telling us a little bit about what brought you into the field that's manifest in the book? So first of all, how did you come to the history of Japan as a field, and modern Japan in particular?
0: Well, um, like most of us, I suppose, there are two versions of that story. There's the official story, which has to do with all sorts of, uh, you know, intellectual problems and uh, deep interests. And then there is, uh, in my case, reality, which has to do with shogun warriors and uh, <laughs> popular culture in 1980s America, where Japan was this fascinatingly kind of different place, um, filled with robots and all sorts of interesting characters. And it really is that popular mass culture that drew me into the study of Japan initially, at least linguistically. And then from there history, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do literature or uh, history, but history sort of took over as I began to um, look into things and really began to work um, in college with a couple of really great professors at a small liberal arts college. And, um, Uh, From there, we end up here, I suppose.
1: Now, the book itself focuses on the history of animals in modern Japan and the history of zoological gardens within that broader field. So can you tell us a little bit about what brought you there? How did you come to focus on this specific topic?
0: Well, uh, it's kind of a two-part answer. The first part is um, my wonderful graduate advisor, Gregory Flugfelder, Um, At Columbia and Greg uh, had an idea for a graduate seminar. He asked himself, what are people not looking at? Can we find a field of study that is wide open um, to ask what it means to create something new um, in our field? And he started with that as an intellectual exercise for all of us and ended up in animal studies which, of course, we all thought no one was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. This was... um, uh, early in the tw- you know in uh, right around 2000, um, and we quickly discovered, of course, that it's this vibrant field of study that none of us had come across, um, including work by the um, by uh, figures such as Harry Ritvo, who uh, kindly uh, contributed a foreword to the book, um, and who's one of kind of the founders of the subfield, this this body of work that's come to be called animal studies. Um, The second part of the answer has to do with the contingent nature of what we do. And that is, even though I was working with Greg on this um, zoo project, I thought it would be a great way. If you're going to talk about animals, how are we going to figure out what they meant and and their place in the past? And I thought, nowhere better than the zoo. But I always thought it was going to be kind of a sideshow to my main work. Um, So I applied to go off to the field as a graduate student to do serious work on on um, the history of public health and hygiene in modernizing Tokyo, and I was interested in, you know, state power and bodies and biopolitics, life and death as it played out there in the nineteenth century. And I went off um, just after nine eleven, actually, to begin that work. Um, and um, when I arrived in. Uh, seminars in Tokyo and began to describe my work to people The Japanese scholars were all kind of interested and they, they nodded politely and, and essentially said, yes, we've been doing that for a long time. Now tell me about the zoo stuff. And, uh, and uh, it, I took that as a an indication that I should perhaps pay more attention to, um, uh, to this project, and so you know, one of them asked me. He said, "Okay, you can present on the public health, the hygiene stuff. That's really interesting. But I, I also want you to do a, a seminar, a zemi presentation on on the history of the zoo." And, and so I thought, well, I better go find out if there are archives. And that was really the moment that this project came together. So I was already four years in plus into the PhD. When I um, packed up my backpack and um, made a phone call to the the Ueno Zoo in Tokyo, which is the the institution that the book is really focused on, um, and asked if I could come by and see if they had any archives there. They publish a magazine, and so, you know, I figured they might have a collection. And that moment was really an epiphany for me, because uh, they were very kind and very generous, um, and... um, you know, humored this odd uh, graduate student from New York who showed up and opened up an archive that turned out to be really just a gem. I mean, it's, so they've been collecting documents at this institution, uh, stretching all the way back to uh, the late 19th century, the founding of the institution in 1882, and really the raw documents that surround the beginnings of the zoological Garden, so 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s, and they've collected them straight through, and no one had, no professional historian, they have in-house historians who are marvelous, and this book owes a tremendous intellectual debt to them. Um, but no no one who does what we do had thought to look at this stuff, because of course, animals, so what, or it's the zoo, how important could it be? And it's. it was just... Um, a real, uh, turning point for me. Um, most especially an event that I'd heard about that became the stuff of chapter four. And that is, um, the, uh, slaughter of animals during wartime in Japan in 1943. And that's the stuff of one of the best selling children's books in post-war Japanese history. Uh, it's called Kawaii Nazo or the pathetic elephants or the sad elephants. And it's about how these animals are killed, uh, at the orders of, um, Uh, bureaucrats or military men, depending on the version. But it is, in in a certain sense, it's the where the wild things are of post-war Japan. It is is quite literally one of the best-selling books in the country. It's been through dozens and dozens of reprints. It's the stuff of movies, the stuff of documentaries. There are folk songs about it. There are stage plays about it. It's read annually um, on August 15th over the radio nationally by a a figure who's sort of like Paul Harvey, this kind of um, uh, aunt-like figure who who, uh, Akiyama Chieko, and she comes on the radio and she recites, she intones not not recites, intones this children's book as a reminder to people of the cost of war and, and so on. And so uh, this strange story uh, I always thought was in fact... A myth and stepping into those archives, I quickly realized that no in fact these events happened not just as they're told uh, but in fact uh, animals were slaughtered uh, during the second world War and and with that I just knew that I had to write about it in one way or the other and, and from there the animals just kind of took over. <laughs>
1: And we'll definitely um, get to that chapter at some length, I think, Um, in the course of our conversation. It's one of the most effective or affective, right? Or one of the most affecting of um, many, many emotional uh, high points in this book. It's, It's a beautifully written book. It's really elegant. It's just a pleasure to sit down and read. It's a sort of what one of my graduate school colleagues in grad school called just as much a horizontal book as a vertical book, it's the kind of book that is such a pleasure that you can just lay down and read it as a form of relaxing as well as a form of learning and reading. And so, and for me, that chapter of the book was very much a kind of it was so emotionally affecting um, that it's uh, it, it's just really transform the way I think about this kind of thing, the way I think about and experience animal history. So thank you for that. And I'm delighted to hear that that was actually what brought you into the project in the first place. It really comes out really beautifully well here. Well, thank you. So this did start out as a dissertation project. And so can you talk a little bit about um, the transition from dissertation to book? Were there any major transformations in what the, um, the structure of the project looked like, how you were conceptualizing either the object of this study or the way you were approaching it in the transition from one form to another?
0: That's a really excellent question, actually, and, and not one that I have been asked uh, publicly before, but um, the book, so it began in the archive and it began in in the 1940s at a moment, and we'll we'll come to this um, in greater length, I know, but of imperial collapse. And so from that moment, that inception point, things kind of rippled outwards, and the natural shores of the project, as it were, turned out to be imperial. That is, the dissertation was about imperial modernity. Um, And the zoo, if you think about zoological gardens, and this is, um, Harry Rivo's work really brought this to light um, in many ways for the first time, although Adorno uh, also makes mention of this, that zoos are, are archives of empire in an important way. They're about gathering the uh, creatures from the edges of empire, importing them into the metropole and making them meaningful, making them speak to larger issues and themes, and most especially political and scientific power. So the dissertation really focused on that. It was, a, it was a tight study of an institution that was a microcosm of empire, as I understood it. And as But as I began to work through the documents uh, in greater detail, the material kept on pushing to larger issues. So it's an archival project in, in a really fundamental sense. I didn't walk into this thinking I was going to write about the zoo. So the archive really dictated where I went, um, not in a passive natural sense that's impossible of course but but the materials themselves really uh, push things outward and I began to realize that the, the zoological garden as its managers understood it was speaking to far more than empire in fact often empire was secondary or tertiary it was really for them uh, emblematic of civilization at first and then uh, a broader conception of what it meant to be modern um, And as a result, the project telescoped outwards on on both ends by about 50 years or more. So the first chapter actually begins in 1822 with a peculiar document that we we may come to later um, Mm -hmm. uh, called the the Botany Sutra. Um, And that... The, po- the project pushed forward, as it were, in that direction, all the way to the beginning of the 19th century, um, into work that actually relates to your uh, first book in, in some really important ways, and I found your work very valuable in, in this context. About, of course, yours and Federico Marcon, who's uh, writing a, a book that resonates with yours in some important ways uh, right now. So it began in that moment, coming out of an early modern or pre-modern uh, natural history. And it also telescoped at the same time right up to the present moment. Um, that is, the, the book really ends a decade into the 21st century. Um, and the reason for that, for me, was to be able to understand the, the broad scope and implications of this civilization and modernity that the managers were concerned with. That is, certain dynamics, certain key and in, a, in basic ways kind of self-evident dynamics only become clear and evident when we look at them over a broader time span. And that most especially for me was the transformation of the natural world from a source of scientific curiosity and just general human curiosity, but also a certain kind of threat um, to a natural world that it in an in, in important ways has been subjugated to human power and culture. Um, So that now the zoo, where the zoo once sought to wall nature out, um, it now draws lines around the natural world and animals in an effort to protect them from us. And for me, that is one of the fundamental meanings of of modernity and modernization is that vast transformation um, and so the book became, in, in important ways, both about empire and about imperialism, but also about those broader dynamics that, it, that either um, underlay it or, or stretch over the top of it and, and give it uh, broader meaning.
1: Great, thank you so much. So let's get into the book itself. Let's really get get into the bits and pieces. The book argues that, among many other really interesting things, um, one of the arguments that's introduced right at the beginning of the book is that a new understanding of animals was central to how Japanese people redefined their place in the natural world in the 19th century. So the story focuses in on this institution that you've already talked a little about. This is the um, Ueno Zoo, and Mm -hmm. you treat the Ueno Zoo here as what you call a public form of hybridized ecology. Okay, so I'm going to just kind of lay out a little bit more of the background and then ask you um, to talk about two of some of the most really interesting, I think, concepts that come up in this part of the book. Okay, so the book is going to assume that the categories of nature, animal, don't pre-exist human knowledge, but rather are, are human Fabrications are human constructions that, as you put it, overlay and define living creatures' environments. And this is related to this idea of the zoo as a form of hybridized ecology. You describe this early on the book, uh, early on in the book, um, as a process of sort of, or you describe some of the work you're doing rather early in the book. As um, looking at a transformation in which, as you put it, managers and marketers created a vision of animals and of nature and then put that vision to work, eventually themselves coming to believe this new vision was simply a picture of nature as it is. So there's really interesting ways here of asking us and helping us. To rethink um, our assumptions of not just what the categories that I've just mentioned mean, right—nature, animals—but the different ways that they've been created and deconstructed and recreated and changed in very different local historical contexts, especially as they relate to problems of modernity. Okay, so with that in mind, so now we're turning. Um, you say early on in the book that the Ueno Zoo became a theater of Anthropocene culture in Japan.
0: So uh, yes. Can you,
1: can you talk a little bit about this notion of Anthropocene as it motivates what you're doing here in the book, and then take us a little bit into how you see the role of Ueno in negotiating the Anthropocene um, for your purposes um, in Japan?
0: Absolutely. Thank you. That's a, a fine um, question and, and a more elegant summary of the, some of the key dynamics that I, I could, in fact, offer myself. Um, th- so this concept of the Anthropocene is, I think, an important one. And I think as historians, we need to do, I mean, this comes out of my desire to pay better attention to what people um, in the sciences uh, in general, um, and in this case, in earth science and climate science, are doing. Um, Paul Crutzen, who's a a Nobel-winning chemist and climate scientist, coined the term, and the the gist of it is that human beings are influenced, not as individuals necessarily, but as a class of creatures. Our influence on the globe has become such that it rivals um, geological forces. Where we once uh, talked about uh, the deep deep past in term, using terms such as Holocene, we now are uh, have created a world of in our own image an anthropocene an age of man an age of the human and the, these questions, I think, are really important to us as historians, and I'm hardly the first one to really recognize this. Chakrabarti has uh, um, written on this eloquently and forcefully. Um, my uh, colleague, uh, Julia Adney Thomas, has also um, approached these issues using Japan as a, as a lens uh, to look at these things. And I think they present some real issues for us as historians and, and how we make our work meaningful uh, in the present ecological moment. Now, Chakrabarty's response is important and in certain ways accurate, and that he, well, of course it's accurate. It, it's, it's, it's a brilliant um, response. But he argues that perhaps the human species as such needs to become uh, a new kind of historical subject in the work that we do. Um, and it's a compelling set of... Arguments, but it, it leads down a path I feel that really calls the practices of history as, as they've uh, come to us into fundamental question. And in a certain sense, and this is not the main thrust of the book, but that this section is really a response to those prompts, and I think they're valuable prompts. Um, and, and it's an argument in favor of cultural history and its importance in the context of these vast global ecological changes. Um, In particular, it's a way of arguing that if we want to be able to make macro-level issues such as climate change or fading biodiversity meaningful or to make them understandable, we have to be able to see them in human-scale terms. And so the book is an attempt to frame these Broader issues in, and put them in a particular environment. Uh, look at them in a particular institution as it as they played out over the course of uh, the full scope of Japan's modern history. So we move from the early nineteenth century all the way to the present moment, um, but we stay for the most part, tightly focused on a single institution in a single place, a single city and so on. Um, and I think cultural history has something important to do with in these, um, in this particular moment and in relation to um, these debates. And I, I would be very pleased if that were one uh, reading of the book um, as it, as it moves into classrooms and people begin to, to look at it.
1: I think there are, um, potentially some really interesting graduate seminars that could come out of the fact that the, uh, the, your book Engaging with the Anthropocene is coming out at roughly the same time as Bruno Latour's new Anthropology of the Anthropocene is coming out. Philippe Descola is writing about this. I think there's a seminar on the Anthropocene and um,
0: social <laughs> history to
1: be done here and, and I think this is a really great contribution to that. So thank you. So another concept um, that emerges as really central to the book, and this happens very early on, is that of ecological modernity. So the book is going to argue, and I'm going to repeatedly come back to the point um, at various chapters after this, that Japan's ecological modernity took form within the institution of the Ueno Zoo in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And that, in fact, by focusing on this case of the zoo, the Anthropocene is actually coeval with modernity itself and are wrapped up in these new ways of thinking about and conceiving what ecology is and what the entities of animal and human human look like within that context. Okay. So this also really nicely brings us into the first chapter of the book on the origins of ecological modernity and the birth of the zoo. The first chapter opens by introducing this work, the Botany Sutra, which you alluded to earlier on in our conversation, which was published in 1822. This is a super, super fascinating text, which uses a Buddhist textual form to introduce a pantheon of deities that aren't necessarily Buddhist deities, (laughs) but instead are another kind of authorities. So can you talk a little bit about this text and sort of how this brings us into understanding your argument about ecological modernity at this point? point in um, in the book
0: oh that's wonderful uh, thank you <laughs> so, so in the, the, the the sutra is produced in 1822 and it's, it's um, written by this character, fascinating guy um, who deserves far more attention than he's gotten thus far, um, named Udagawa Yoan. And Udagawa is a practitioner of honzogaku or natural history um, in Tokugawa, Japan. Um, and, you know, for my money, you can't understand Tokugawa history without understanding honzogaku. And it, it, it mystifies me that we've had so little work to date um, on this set of discourses and practices in my field. Again, this is Federico Marcone is, is working on this and is part of, I'm really excited about that book. It's going to be a very good book. Um, but Udagawa is even within this group of people who are writing about the meaning of the natural world and it, a, a great deal of it, as in the Chinese case, is focused on materia medica, that is um, medicines that are uh, useful in everyday life. Udagawa is a bit of a, theorist he's writing a theory of the natural world and as in his botany sutra which um uh is a remarkably short uh but very dense uh work he coins a number of new terms and he argues that we've completely misunderstood the entire uh meaning of the natural world um And in fact, in order to fully comprehend the meanings of nature, we need to pay attention not to the sages of the past, but to this new set of sages. He calls them Taisei, uh, uh, which is a term that harkens back to Confucian uh, sages. And these include Gesner, Ray, and Linnaeus in the Western natural historical tradition. Uh, And from that reading those texts in a sense, the sutra is an act of translation, but it's also an act of transculturation and further. It's a new theory of the meaning of the natural world. And, and, and by extension, and this really speaks to the the book, my book uh, as a whole, by extension, what it means to be human in the world. And, um, as a part of describing this new way of seeing nature, no longer uh, when we look to the natural world, do we see, you know, a kind of inherent creativity as some might see coming out of a Shinto tradition or the, the traditions that became labeled as Shinto subsequently. We don't get therapeutic qualities, as in uh, the pursuit of medical uh, valuable medicines in the natural world, nor, when we look there, do we see a kind of moral mirror, as one might in certain lines of the Confucian tradition, <clears throat> or Neo-Confucian. But rather, what what Udagawa sees when he looks into the mirror of nature is, is reason. And he begins to discern there a kind of underlying logic, he believes, um, that becomes the grounds for all other things. And as a part of seeing nature in this new way, he, he coins a couple of new terms or terms that take on a new meaning. And for me, the most important one, because I'm concerned with animals in, in the book and the meaning of the animal, by extension, the meaning of the, what it means to be human, uh, this term doubutsu, uh, which is the modern Japanese term for animal that's, that's still in use. Um, and using that as a pivot uh, in that Sutra, and it's a hybrid work. It's science. It's it's kind of theory. It's um, it's a, in a certain sense theology. It's a really fascinating piece, and and probably the stuff of a, another wonderful graduate seminar. Um, but he uses the this idea of the animal is kind of a wedge to to put between humanity and the natural world, this bridging figure in a certain sense. And the question then becomes what separates us from the other animals? He lists, he has these great compendiums and lists of other kinds of creatures. Sometimes they run 16, 17 different uh, things, you know, you get from lions to dogs to birds and, uh, but the animal always sits above these, this, uh, this kind of diverse, natural world as a kind of master metaphor. And the question is, what separates humanity, who is invariably at the head of his listings, from the animals that follow? Uh, and for him, it is reason. And so we're, there's, this is part of a global history. It's an odd corner of the global spread of Linnaean nomenclature in the first instance, but also uh, certain approaches to understanding animals and nature that come out of the Cartesian tradition in in, uh, Western Europe, for example. But it's not a simple importation. It's a translation into um, terms that would be meaningful and useful in early 19th century Japan. So, that's a, a long half answer to, <laughs> to your question, I think. But in 1822, we get this new term that carries a, whole, a host of new meanings. And I found that to be absolutely fascinating. Um, and that became the focus of the opening of the book.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And this actually really nicely leads us into what else is happening in this chapter. Um So in the course of this chapter, you take us from this new conception of animals in 1822 all the way to the late um, 1800s in which we see the emergence of the first zoo in Japan. And this is um, a story about the emergence of the Ueno Park and the Ueno Zoo. Yes. Yeah, so these themes that you mentioned um, that are germane to understanding the Botany Sutra play out later on as we see the conditions in which and through which the zoo emerges. And these are the importance of um, translation and adaptation, negotiation with other forms of knowledge that are forming the bedrock from which the zoo is emerging. So you take us into this story of the ways that um, the Ueno Park is actually part of Japan's answer to Western institutional modernity. You take us into an understanding of the park or the zoo um, specifically as a kind of penitentiary sort of really uh-huh. that to what's going on here. You also take us into um, this really fascinating engagement with um, evolution in particular translations of Western works on evolution coming out of the work of Ishikawa Chiyomatsu. Um, Who's writing about animal evolution and its relations to race, um, its relations to what it is to uh, talk about exhibition? Its relationship to also the zoo as part of a larger project of mass education that's coming out of this interest in evolution that's in turn coming out of this larger effort to translate and adapt materials from um, out the sort of broader world into what's happening with regard to animals and humans and zoos in particular in Japan. And it ends with this wonderful caricature um, that I'm just going to tease out there for listeners. Um, There's a history of cartooning um, that that plays a little bit of a role here. And I I will just mention that there's an interesting cartoon here that speaks to all of these issues. Okay, so with that in mind, you then take us Once you've set up the emergence and existence of zoo and how it sort of arose, you take us into some of the really important kinds of work that it's doing in the context of society and empire in this context. And the second chapter introduces another absolutely fascinating aspect of what's going on here. And this is understanding the zoo in terms of the dream life of imperialism, as you put it. Mm -hmm. So... Let's can let's open up into what's happening in this chapter by talking a little bit about this, um, the dream life of imperialism. How did imperialist expansion in this period reshape what the natural world was and its instantiation in terms of exhibits in and understandings of what was happening in the zoo? Oh,
0: that's a, a wonderful um, uh, question. Uh, you know. Um, One thing that really struck me when looking at at these documents um, was that the the natural world of the empire, the edges of empire in particular, um, the colonies and, in fact, beyond Japan's formal colonies into the real and imaginary spaces of um, mountains, jungles, and so on, were posed in the zoological garden. By its managers, and I'm throughout the book. I'm very careful to listen for the voices of patrons and to give them voice when the materials allow. But uh, the archives and documents of that sort are, are remarkably unusual, especially in the early uh, chapters. So, most especially in the early chapter, first two chapters we get the official version of what's happening. We hear what what the managers themselves thought they were doing um, when they put the institution together. And one thing they're doing is they're using, rather than projecting a kind of satisfying vision of nature into the domesticated uh, landscapes of rural Japan, as um, ethnographers such as Yanagida Kunio and so on did in the early 20th century even the late 19th century is a kind of antithesis of the modern or a preserve of authentic Japanese identity or a place where modernity has not be- begun its work of uh, deterritorializing uh, and and the processes of alienation that we often asso- associate with industrial modernity um, have yet to reach uh, some have said um, in the early 20th century the zoos managers come in and and I, I I'm do not believe in a sense it's it's a conscious act of ideology, ideological production, but they project those ideas onto the edges of empire rather than into the kind of comfortably domesticated spaces uh, of, of uh, rural Japan. And they, if, if you wish to solve the problems of modern society, the disaffection that seems to be... Um, seems to beset so many people in the city, for example, they say, uh, look not to villages which are immiserated and rather poor, but look instead to the edges of empire. Look where real authentic nature remains untouched. Um, and so then the empire becomes a, an answer for the, um, the problems, the most especially urban problems uh, of, of modern life. And and that I found that to be fascinating. So the vision of nature, the dream life of imperialism, that's there in the, in the zoo, starting in the, about 1897, um, is not a vision of empire as it actually is, but as a, a vision of empire as the managers believed it ought to be. And that struck me as historiographically significant as well. That is, our histories of empire in the Japanese case so often tell the correct and accurate story of exploitation, immiseration, and so on. That is no doubt in many ways accurate, but there is also a, a, a dream life, a compelling um, a uh, so set of uh, stories and feelings that came with Imperial expansion that made it meaningful and desirable people didn't pursue Empire because they had to in the in the, the cases that I outlined but in fact because they wished to uh, and I found that to be, important for how we do think about our writing on the past, but also uh, simply interesting in and of itself. And so some of the stories are, are there, and I talk about some of the ways that that the empires um, brought home and made meaningful. I'd be happy to talk about those if you wish.
1: Oh, sure. Um, I, I'll just kind of um, mention, and then we can talk a little bit more about it, um, one of the really interesting things that happens in this chapter is that you 're showing us the ways in which, at least according to some of the people that you 're working from and engaging and whose work you 're engaging with, encounters with animals in the zoo are actually thought to help prepare people for the demands of
0: colonial right? life. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so that's a really
1: fascinating part of this story. And also the sort of, um, uh, the colonial experience also comes in in terms of a whole section on war trophies. in Yes. The, the, so... This is a really interesting aspect of the sort of the experience of the colonies and training one for experience in the colonies is actually happening in microcosm here. So if there's any aspect of that as it's happening in the chapter that particularly fascinates you, I would love it if you wanted to share that with us.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, let me um, speak to maybe two, maybe three points on that. One is to come back to something that you—I um, appreciate that you brought up very early in our discussion. I think it's really important in how we practice history and think about our work. But uh, and that is affect. Um, emotion. And so the managers of the zoo, and these are very highly educated individuals. They're coming out of, um, from this period forward, they're coming out of imperial universities for the most part. Um, And uh, they are public intellectuals in many cases. Um, And uh, one character in particular, Koga Tadamichi, who uh, is running the zoo during the, this uh, era and, and actually runs the zoological garden through across the war and into the post-war. He's, he's a very prominent figure in these circles um, for decades. But he argues, and it's an argument that carries weight with um, the imperial household bureaucracy in the first instance and later Tokyo City bureaucrats, technocrats, who take over running the zoo in the 1920s. He argues that the zoological garden is a training ground for future imperialists, that is, children. Um, And it's a training ground not in terms of detailed knowledge, uh, necessarily, although that's important. It is a microcosm of empire and later a microcosm of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, but rather a, a kind of classroom for feeling and affect. And he argues that to be good imperialists, um, and in fact that's very close to the language that he, he uses, we have to train ourselves to be feeling to be caring imperialists. And he goes about consciously attempting to craft the zoo's exhibits so that they embody this approach to the natural world, an approach to animals that's not exploitative, that doesn't, to use his terms, make fun of the animals, but rather respects them and understands them as they are. Now that all sounds quite uh, enlightened in a sense, um, until we realize that at the same time that he's talking about animals, he's talking about colonial peoples. And so the zoo in, in this vision becomes, it, it, again, this, this border figure of the animal allows the institution to cross, you know, move between the human world and the natural world, even as it creates that distinction out of a common, uh, a common world. And so he's crafting uh, the displays that are meant to embody an enlightened approach to captivity, um, most especially um, that fit with a new sense of um, civilization, of what's proper, uh, and so on. A, they're remarkably clean. Um, Their is odor is erased from the institution as, as much as possible. But more importantly, he begins the process of removing bars and any visible explicit means of captivity so that the the animals themselves appear to move about freely. Um, as if they wish to be there. Um, further, in order to elicit that affective engagement, that that sense of being uh, in the natural world or confronting it, even in this highly mediated context, he begins. He structures the displays in such a way so that one might hope to, for example, meet uh, the gaze of a large bear or um, lion, uh, tiger. Um, leopard, any of these large megafauna, these large threatening species in other contexts, things that would eat you. He wants you to be as a child, right? He wants you to be able to walk into these places and look across open space and, uh, and, and into the eyes of um, a bear or a, a, a one of these species. It's a remarkable transformation. Um, and uh, and he's quite effective. So uh, as, a, as a coda to this kind of um, uh, line of discussion, this fits into a global history of display and exhibition as well. So the technologies that allow this are coming out of early 20th century Germany in particular, and they spread globally. So the zoos that you and I know, and most of us encounter when we go to a zoological garden where you have these, these, um, open spaces or pools of water that contain the animals rather than, uh, kind of decontextualized concrete cages and so on. Um, they come out of this global moment and Japan moves fairly quickly. The Ueno zoo is the first, zoological garden in Japan to put these kinds of dis- displays to work um, but then they spread remarkably quickly and they they spread not just within Japan but across an imperial network of institutions. So Japan, the Ueno Zoo is the flagship institution not just for Japan but for the Japanese Empire. They build zoological gardens in Taipei, they build a zoological garden uh, in Seoul, uh, Keijo as they call it. They imagine this tremendous zoological garden uh, in, in uh, Shinkyo, the, the capital of of occupied northeast China or Manchuria, that is to, to be larger, in, in they hope, than the Bronx Zoo, for example, which is the largest at the time. It's never carried through to fruition, but nonetheless, they're they're dreaming big <laughs> in, in this in this context, and um, and so one can imagine. That It's not just about training imperialists, children that will become imperial agents, and he's quite explicit in this in a few documents, um, and that's one of the documentary finds in this, this book is that this, those materials have never been brought to light in, in Japan. But also imagine what it means to walk into a zoological garden in occupied Seoul or Taipei and to look across these, uh, through the bars or across um, um, uh, a pool of water into an animal representation or representative of your uh, nation. Um, And so... As a part of this history, zoo uh, officials begin to offer tours to visiting officials from various colonial cities, uh, towns, and so on, as a means of exhibiting Japan's mastery of the natural world, mastery of scientific nomenclature. uh, And also, um, if you look at the documents, the, the visitors have a great time. And so they tend to anyway. And so it also asks us to flip our reading of Empire where we wish to see resistance, we often find people saying, this is great. <laughs> uh, and that's important for us as historians to to grab hold of that sense of wonder. Um, uh, Hiromi Mizuno in her wonderful book on what is it, Science for the Empire, talks about the mobilization of wonder. And this is exactly an instance of that. And where wonder itself, the, the human capacity for curiosity that makes us, for my money, uh, people, human beings, um, is being mobilized in the service of these uh, very questionable political goals. Um, We often write that out because somehow it seems irrelevant or impolitic to to recognize um, that some of these things involved a dream life of joy and wonder uh, and so on.
1: So speaking of mobilization... So speaking of mobilization, by the 1930s, what's happening is that military culture, as you put it here, has conquered the garden. The core concern of the Ueno Zoo becomes not um, no longer public education or imperial entertainment, but instead mobilization for total war. So the zoo's primary mission, as you show it in the second part of the book, becomes the popularization of the war and the transmission of information considered important to national victory, and we see all kinds of ways in this part of the book in which this plays out is a celebration of animals through ritual and spectacle that both um, take on and celebrate life and service and then commemorate um, and deal with death. And so life and death as they are manifest and being what in the human and animal world in the context of the zoo become really paramount to understanding what's happening here in the context of the zoo um, within the mobilization for total war. Now, Chapter 3 looks specifically at military animals, and I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about this, just simply because um, I don't want to keep you for three hours we <laughs> I mean, can easily sure. talk about this for three hours, but I'll just mention um, for listeners, what's happening here is um, in the context of this transformation of the goals of the zoo in the context of uh, war mobilization, we have... A celebration of Japan's animal soldiers, um, among other things, horses, pigeons. Um, and you focus in particular on this wonderful example of the horse, um, the celebration of the horse, a song that's written um, to commit the importance of the horse in the context of war, the beloved horse march of 1939. <laughs> and there's a really wonderful um account here of encounters with animal death and rites that are performed for army horses and dogs and messenger pigeons who are associated with service um, in the war. And I just want to mention that to direct listeners to it because it's a really wonderfully evocative part of the book. Another really wonderfully evocative, and as I mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, very emotionally powerful part of the book is what comes next. And this is what I want to move to. Um, if that's okay with you, of course, of course. Chapter four looks at what you called, you know, what inspired by the work of Robert Darnton, the Great Zoo Massacre. Now, this was a systematic slaughter of Ueno's most famous and valuable animals in the summer of nineteen forty-three. This is such a powerful chapter. It's such an affecting chapter. I think at this point, it's best if I step back for a bit and just pose a very simple question to you as a way of opening this up. What happened? So what happened, and take this on in any way that you want to introduce it.
0: Of course. Well, thank you. Um, So in the the summer of 1943, uh, Japan's military fortunes tilted. Um, This is a pretty well-known story. Um, What this chapter asks us to think about is um, everyday life in the context of imperial collapse. What happens when these vast structures that, that span nations that reach from uh, Tokyo, downtown Tokyo, where the, the Ueno Zoo is, all the way to the Aleutian Islands, into Manchuria, that is northeast China, all along the Chinese coast, down into southeast Asia by 1943? What happens when they begin to collapse? And they begin to collapse rapidly. And a terrifying. We often think about this as a story of triumph for the Western powers and the Allies. But it's important for us to put ourselves on the ground and begin to try to understand what it looked like from Tokyo and other places in the empire. In my case, I'm focused on Tokyo. I think the story could be told in a variety of different ways. Um, So this chapter is really about that question. And it was the spark for the book in the first instance because the, the events are so surreal and so strange that I thought they were fiction. And in fact, they have, I haven't written about this in, in the book, but I will in uh, later work. Um, Murakami Haruki has in fact written about versions of these events as they played out, um, amongst others. In the summer of 1943, um, as the Japanese uh, newspapers and so on continued to be largely filled with stories of imperial victory, the occasional defeat, but the public culture largely uh, remained celebratory. Um, uh, in the summer of 1943, then, as things began to tilt at the edges of empire against Japan, defeats at Midway and so on, beginning at 42, and moving forward, the zoo became home to this peculiar event that is the mass-mediated, ritualized sacrifice of its most valuable, uh, important, and beloved animals, up to and including three hugely famous uh, Asian elephants, and it's important when we put these, when we talk about these events and about the zoo in general, that we recognize that this is mass media at the time. We're talking about the age not just before television uh, uh, and the internet, but also uh, radio is, is, you know, coming into its own as Dong Yang has uh, argued in his book on telecommunications. But really, the zoo is is a, a mecca for mass culture and mass media. It's not just that millions of people are going to the zoo, and they are something like three million people plus going through the gates uh, in the middle of the war. It's the most popular cultural institution on the planet at the time, uh, zoo um, officials argue. Um, but it's also the center of a publishing empire that that sees uh, images of its animals uh, published in school textbooks, magazines, um, uh, newspapers, and so on. So the people know these animals by name, not just in the neighborhood, not just in Tokyo, but across the empire. And they're being, what happens in 43 is they are systematically exterminated uh, at the orders of Tokyo's new governor general, uh, a man named Odachi Shigeo. And this became the puzzle for me that it, it sparked the book. What on earth? is this this man doing? He's a brilliant figure. He goes on to be home minister uh, during the war in the closing uh, uh, months of the war. Further, he's resuscitated after the Second World War, brought back as the minister of education um, to do battle with leftist teachers unions under the U.S. occupation. So he's he's a a kind of classic wartime uh, technocratic figure in that he's classified as a war criminal by the Americans and then brought back to serve a post war conservative political agenda because he's just so sharp. What's happened is Oldati had been the special governor or mayor, of uh, occupied Singapore at the time. And, and when he was there, he was, so he's the chief civilian figure, um, constantly in tension with the military, but nonetheless working uh, kind of hand in glove with them. And he begins to watch as the empire uh, begins to collapse at its edges. In the midst of that collapse, where everything seems to be going wrong for the Japanese military, he's brought back to Tokyo to reorganize the city in preparation for a potential invasion and and uh, certainly to instate a new kind of order. This is uh, Arguably the single greatest reorganization of, of, um, of political institutions in the city of Tokyo in the 20th century, and it happens in the context of the war, shapes how the city looks and is administered well into the post-war period. So there's a trans st- story here. But he's brought back and made uh, put at the head of the civilian administration. He looks at the at, and he recollects this after the war. So a lot of this this chapter is dealing with recollection because, as much as the archive is wonderful, there are certain things that were destroyed. Most particular, Odachi's um, uh, um, personal reminiscences and, and uh, documents related to him were burned as the as the Americans arrived. Um, but he looks around him and, he's, and he he recollects later as do the people that surrounded him that war is. It, the war is tilted against us. How, how, can these, how can the newspaper be filled with these stories of success and so on? And he asks himself, how, how do I make this clear to the people of Tokyo? And his mechanism, and this is the, the strange genius, I think, of Odachi. Uh, and Odachi, I don't want to paint him as a, some kind of stock evil figure. He, he is not uncaring. Um, in fact, he sees much of his action as uh, in support of the children of Tokyo and, a, and an urge to protect them from these myths that he thinks will endanger them. But what he does is he's, he organizes the slaughter of the zoological gardens animals and then the celebration of that slaughter in a, a fairly lavish memorial service that is then reported on. And he makes sure that it's reported on in the major newspapers um, further. After that reporting, um, the home ministry, of which he is one of the top administrators, begins to send out orders to zoological gardens, in some cases direct orders, in other cases suggestions, that these kinds of sacrifices, these kinds of killings be carried out in each of the empire's 30-some zoological gardens and major animal collections. And so you begin to see these sacrifices happening in in city after city, in place after place, and they're replicated uh, across the empire such that by the close of the war, uh, I believe it's the case that there are only two Asian elephants left alive in the entire um, uh, Japanese archipelago.
1: Now, these sacrifices, as you put it, are these killings are slow for the animals. Um, they're painful oh. for the animals. They are, and one of the things about this chapter is that it really um, it takes us into what it means to talk about and to imagine um, what that process would have been like from the perspective of people who cared a lot about these animals. Um, and it's. And the, I won't go into too much detail here, um, but it's just an incredibly powerful depiction of how painful this uh, process was, not just for probably the animal people working at the zoo, living closely with them, who had to negotiate on the one hand this order Um, That they were compelled to follow, while at the same time um, understanding that that order meant taking these beings that they were living with, working closely with, and putting them through, in some cases, excruciating circumstances that extended uh, for what seems from the reader to have felt like an interminable amount of time. Yeah. So this was, um, this was a part of the book that really brings home in very visceral, very emotional terms um, what this meant.
0: And that, that was intentional. I'm glad, uh, thank you for that reading, and, and I wanted to underline that that's intentional on my part in the ways this structure or this chapter is, is uh, told. Um, one of the things that I think the books, the children's story that, that I described earlier, does is it, it allows people to imagine themselves emotionally back in this time. Um, and uh, that struck me as I first came and, and I, the idea of reading these stories to children is, uh, as the, as the father of a young child is, is disturbing. They're very disturbing stories. And yet they are, um, classics in post-war Japan. Almost everyone knows this story in, in one way or another is, um, but it struck me that that might be instructive for us as historians um, to recognize that, this, that these structures of emotion, these feelings, um, can help us begin, can be a tool for historians as we look about how to accurately depict the past. It's not an unmediated picture, of course, but the story is told in such a way as to try to elicit uh, an emotional response that was, in fact... Uh, if, we're, if we take the documents that they were elicited at the time um, by the killings. And so it's that recognition that I tried to run through the book as a whole, that these animals aren't just symbols, they're alive. And that brings an ethical dimension to uh, the work, and it also uh, asks us to think about how we write history in different ways. How do we get that... Uh, as you put it, visceral, <laughs> the visceral nature of things in there. So thank you for that reading. Uh, thank you.
1: For, so as we move into um, the next part of the book, part three, we move into the post-war context there's a ton that we could talk about here that we're not um, going to be able to make time to talk about but i want to just ah, touch sure. on at least a few of the really important things that are happening here now chapter five actually ends with this photograph
0: uh, this image <laughs> yeah.
1: that i think really nicely encapsulates what's happening in the chapter so it's this image of a young girl as described and an old man um that are you know in this image that um Uh, captures them in the process of what might be described as shaking hands. Now, the little (laughs) girl is actually a young chimpanzee, and the older man is the emperor. And this brings us out, or this really brings out the dynamics here, as we see in the post-war context, the emergence of the child. As being yes. a really important um, kind of actor in the story in the way that wasn't so explicit before. Um, and this is part of uh, an engagement of the state where economic development is re- replacing imperial expansion as a driving mission. This becomes reflected in the zoo's activities and an important figure in that is the figure of the child and how we understand that in relation to animals the nation the zoo and the state so could you talk a little bit about um about that the sort of the emergence of a children's zoo and the importance of the child in this part of the book more generally um in terms of what's happening at the zoo
0: absolutely I, so that i that picture was such a it's it's a classic picture and yeah. um Uh, You know, the the emperor meeting Susie the chimpanzee. It turns out that Susie the chimpanzee has arrived via the United States where she's trained in an American circus and is imported along with a number of other animals um, by U.S. authorities. So that the zoo, which after the sacrifice of '43 becomes this gray, dreary um, reminder of what's been lost in many ways, is revitalized—literally revitalized, brought back to life uh, by, the, in no small measure, through the largesse of the American occupation, who, who um, through official channels and unofficial channels, the Church of Latter Day Saints, for example, um, repopulates the cages that have been decimated through imperial sacrifice um, with animals that are gathered by Americans from across the North American continent, but also... Uh, from around the world, and Susie is one of those emblems, so she's she's a marker of the edges of humanity much as Hirohito himself if you think about it, embodies the other end of the spectrum he had only a few years earlier been elevated as uh, as holy, as, as somehow beyond human, uh, where Susie who eats with a fork and loves sweets, has a remarkable sweet tooth, that's why she's reaching out her hand is to ask him for a coin so that she can go buy candy at one of the kiosks embodies the other end of that spectrum of acculturation and that struck me as really important because it underlines commonality and difference at the same time and that's one of the tensions that runs through the whole book likewise children um, in many ways embody a similar sort of dynamic and um i hadn't realized this till i began doing the work but of course children and animals are often, I want to say always, but often uh, seen together because they're both, in a sense, unacculturated. uh, And they're both, in a sense, in a certain uh, vision, a kind of um, polite vision of the natural world, uh, seen as innocent. And innocence in the wake of the Second World War becomes such a powerful um, uh, condition or characteristic and what struck me is, I, this is a, again coming out of the archives, it, it was not an idea that I had before I began to work through the materials, is that in the post-war period under the occupation, the U.S. occupation, which goes from 1945 to 1952, um, and then moving into the decade or so following, um, children themselves begin to claim that innocence and mobilize it not so much as political agents explicitly in most cases, but certainly in pursuit of their own goals. And so we get in the post-war era in the zoo, uh, children lobbying for the return of elephants, for example, to the zoological garden and they begin to make these claims uh based on their innocence and um that in fact the United States needs to open up the doors to the wider world so that animals can come in so that the children can enjoy the uh seeing elephants and so on this eventuates through a series of uh events and conversions and, and political uh interactions not only in the return of elephants um To Ueno, but also in the movement of uh, tens of thousands of Tokyo children uh, on special trains um, down to central Japan to uh, see the last two remaining living elephants uh, in the archipelago. Um, Further, it comes to involve the Japanese Prime Minister um, and uh, the U.S. Supreme Commander General Douglas MacArthur uh, and others who become engaged in cultural dip- diplomatic negotiations to allow the importation of elephants back into the country, most especially from Thailand uh, and Um, from India, where Nehru himself becomes involved in the return of elephants uh, to Japan, in part as a lobbying effort that he saw as running counter to or contrary to American assertions of hegemony in the region, so that he wanted to open the door to Japan to create in support of the non-aligned movement amongst other reasons. So high politics uh, become involved with childish desire. Uh, and agent and the movement of vast pachyderms <laughs> in this this particular story, uh, in what I call neocolonial potlatch. Uh, so there's a lot of anthropology coming here because the anthropologists, the historians were kind of late to figure out that animals matter. The anthropologists have known for a long time. Uh, and so I've been using a lot of their stuff uh, here.
1: And so this is, as we come to the, the book, the last chapter and the epilogue, which both focus on pandas, um, there's actually an element of this um, high political story that you're mentioning and also an element of an emerging transnational story. Um, really explicitly, which also is implicit in what you were mentioning in terms of India and its connection to Japan, that comes out in this example of the panda. And so the chapter 6, and to some extent um, the epilogue revisits this theme, looks at what you call pandas in the Anthropocene.
0: <laughs> it
1: uses pandas um, as a kind of um, synecdoche to talk about the ways in which what an animal is and how it functions really also has transformed in this post-war context. So you consider here... Um, pandas, uh, among many other things, pandas in the context of Conrad Lorenz's ideas of animals and you look at pandas as political animals, pandas as consumer objects, and also pandas as a kind of biotechnology um, in turn looking at um, the context of uh, panda diplomacy and relationships between the PRC and Japan looking at um, consumer culture and the emergence of merchandise and copyright issues that go along with that as they come out of a concern with pandas at the zoo and also the problems of breeding pandas um, and how that's implicated in kinds of transnational relationships. So I think this is a good... maybe a good way to bring this home and bring this together is to just kind of give you an opportunity to talk about this issue of the animal as this locus of transnational political um, encounter age as it is instantiated in the panda here. Can you talk a little bit about that and how um, this part of the book uh, sort of revisions or looks at the way that those processes are revisioned in the context of the zoo? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, um, and forgive me if I, I don't quite answer because we broke up just a little bit there on mine. Oh, no, no, so no, I, no. I, I didn't hear the question oh, all the no, way through to the can, end.
1: So uh, the, su- <laughs> the superhero is uh, the panda as an example of an animal, which is the locus of a kind of transnational politics in this mm-hmm. part of the story.
0: Absolutely. So, what I find so fascinating about these creatures is they're singularly ill-suited to breeding in captivity, um, and that that contradiction that comes becomes apparent when the closer you look about the panda and the more you think about um, giant pandas, uh, that contradiction becomes really telling. So that they are the object of unrivaled human curiosity fascination they are the the quite literally the embodiment of cute um they have a they're as lorenz argues and others they embody a host of characteristics that human beings find uniquely appealing that we tend to associate with our children uh their markings uh mimic large eyes uh the large eyes of our our children for example Etc. They have almost seem to have thumbs, but they're clumsy, so they're cute. Their edges are fuzzy, um, and you can go through the host of characteristics as I actually do in the in the chapter, um, drawing on the work of of, uh, Lorenz, and then actually reading Lorenz through readings by by my actors, the the Japanese um, zookeepers and staff. They embody. They they draw this tremendous attention, and yet they resist our. Attempts to breed them, to hold them in captivity in ways that are um, suitable and and healthy, and so on, and that's what I get to in the biotechnology of cute. The tremendous amount of capital and energy, scientific knowledge that is devoted to making these bears breed. We're obsessed with panda sex, and yet we we seem sort of shy. You know, they're living stuffed animals. So how could that be uh, the case? And in that case, in that sense, they embodied for me one of the crucial dynamics in the book. Uh, and that is the, the cultural history has been concerned in, in many ways with um, the meanings of various kinds of texts, media, material, culture, objects, books, commodities of all sorts. But practitioners in my field have often forgotten the connections between cultural, historical dynamics and the natural world. And I think this story, perhaps uniquely amongst those in the book, sort of opens that up, so that the simple act of being curious about these creatures and our visiting the zoo, Japanese line up, uh, and it's not just Japanese, of course, but in Tokyo, uh, when the animals arrive in 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 uh, 1972, the lines are miles long. People wait and wait and wait to catch a three-second glimpse of these creatures uh, as they're held in their cages. And that in its, of itself is sort of remarkable. But, you know, when I was young, people lined up to see King Tut and Egyptian artifacts and so on. What the pandas bring home for me Uh, is that in a certain sense, in a very clear sense, the ecological costs of that kind of human curiosity and that our actions uh, that seem divorced from the natural world are always in one way or another implicit or embedded in the natural world. Um, These creatures that arrive from the People's Republic of China uh, as a gift uh, of a, a token of panda diplomacy, bringing former colonial and imperial foes uh, back together in the wake of Nixon's visit uh, to the PRC, their bodies begin to register the costs of that human curiosity. Things are so Busy, hectic, loud, uh, uh, surrounding them, that they develop nervous conditions, begin to foam at the mouth, and risk slipping into cardiac arrest uh, because of the stress that's induced by their removal from their home ecology. One of these animals was in fact taken from the wild, uh, put into um, uh, Chinese captivity for a brief moment, but was not born in captivity, and then is brought to Tokyo, and they they begin to register the cost of this curiosity. Uh, in ways that are palpable um, and visceral, again. And that struck me as uh, quite important. (laughs) Further, that embodies a tension that the Japanese zookeepers themselves recognize, which I find, I mean, these are very smart individuals. This book is not an indictment of the zoo. It is a, a critique of modern understandings of the natural world and a history of how they came into being in Japan in particular but they recognize that the media value of these creatures has outstripped their value uh, their value as actual living physical beings and that tension, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about abstract theories and, and, and so on when, when we're practicing cultural history. But in this case, the people on the ground are recognizing something that looks a lot like some of the theoretical apparatus that we bring to bear on things. And and looking at how it registers a kind of, um, uh, if we understand the bears as icons of the natural world, an ecological Cost uh, that gets overlooked. And that tension, that contradiction, we love these creatures, they're uniquely desirable, and yet uh, that desire uh, has concrete ecological costs, seemed in many ways to be a, a, a very tight microcosmic representation of the broader question. Uh, that really confronts us all now in environmental historical terms, and that is how did we get here and how do we get out of this? Because we are in the midst of, uh, you know, an emergent ecological crisis.
1: Well, Ian, I think this is a really nice place to bring us to a conclusion. Thank you so much for all the time that you're talking with me about the book and also for a really wonderful book. Now, there's a ton in here that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily um, deep story that's permeated with not just some really interesting conceptual and historiographical points, but tons and tons of characters, human and non-human, animal and non-animal, that really bring to life what was happening in this locus and really more broadly um, in the context you're looking at. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention at this point for listeners?
0: Um, Thank you. for That's a very generous uh, question. You know, I wanted to underline this. You started out by asking about ecological modernity and this formulation that I put at the center of the book. And I I wanted to return to that formulation as a means of kind of bringing things to a close Um, and the reasons for selecting um, those terms for describing uh, what I'm about in the book. uh, I think it has to do with these stories that we've spoken about in the second half of our discussion in particular, and that is the, the story of the pandas uh, and the stories of um, uh, of the elephants during the war and the, the elephants that are brought in. And that is um, to recognize that one of the things I th- think the book may... Be, it may make it interesting is that we, we see this, environmental, this connection between environmental history and cultural history. The two sets of uh, practices or ways of doing history are often in conversation with one another. They're often done together. In this case, what became clear to me as I moved from the dissertation to the book is that the zoo may have been a kind of imagined landscape, but it wasn't just imagined. And that dynamic is what I'm trying to get at in part in that description of ecological modernity, understanding human subjects as they walk through this space, as in as walking through a uniquely diverse urban ecology and also seeing the animals themselves, though they've been um, extracted from nature. "Quote unquote," they remain embedded and subject embedded in and subject to natural and ecological dynamics uh, in the zoological garden itself. And so, the dynamic of ecological modernity is meant to highlight that paired process that we imagine these nature and culture to be separate, uh, and at the same time, in the pursuit of those imaginations. We are, in fact, engaged in a process of interpenetration between the natural and the social that I think, for my money, really characterizes modernization itself. Um, and so I wanted to close by, by pointing to that. dynamic.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? Um, what are you working on now and what project or projects are currently
0: inspiring you? Oh, thanks. Well, so there are uh, really three projects, but I really want to just point out two, and I'll be very brief because I haven't been brief in any of my other answers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. No, no, no. Uh, The first um, uh, that draws most immediately... On this project is, is a project that I'm, I started out thinking about uh, as the ecological corpse. And it is the environmental history of dead bodies in the Japanese empire. And in particular, I've been lucky enough to come up with, uh, to find a couple um, of, uh, of uh, documentary caches that uh, wherein um, necropsies are performed. And I'm interested in reading those necropsies not just as instances in the history of science, although they certainly are, or instances in, in the exercise of colonial power. They certainly are, but also as uh, environmental historical documents. What does it mean to look at these human bodies as registers of environmental dynamics? And this draws on a lot of work in, in a variety of different fields, but it comes out of a puzzle that is at the center of, of that particular book, which is, uh, I, I asked myself, what, what is the smallest <laughs> Thing That we can write about and still write a meaningful history of the human engagement with the natural world. And so uh, my first answer, I thought, okay, human society is what matters. So I started to do some work on small hamlets in northeastern Japan, where I used to live. I lived in rural Iwate Prefecture for about two and a half years teaching English. It was a marvelous place. And uh, in fact, many of the hamlets that I had started to research were quite literally erased in the tsunami of uh, 2011. But I thought maybe one of those could be the subject of, a, of, 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 could answer this question. I realized, no, we can go smaller. So there's a chapter that I see coming out of that. Then uh, the second chapter might be something about these, the ecological corpse. And further, I think, and I won't bore you with all the chapters, but we can push, keep on pushing farther in pursuit of that question and, and it... It's a simple, fun question, which I think our books need to do, need to be about. Um, but it also leads to all kinds of uh, larger uh, sorts of um, issues. The book that I'm writing now is um, a history of energy in uh, and electricity in particular in the making of modern Tokyo. And it begins with the advent of electrical power in really in the 1870s and 1880s when they began to light the, the city. Um, but then tracks the electrification and the transforming transformation of human relationships with the natural world through the register of energy, um, across the full scope of the modern era, right up to and through. In fact, I don't see 2011 as an endpoint, but the crisis in Fukushima, uh, that plant is, uh, uh, through a long set of, uh, events is built in Fukushima in response to very local political dynamics in Tokyo neighborhoods where people begin to argue that, uh, Coal production in particular, sulfur and so on are poisoning their homes, their children, and so on. And they begin to insist that power production be moved out of the city. Um, and so I'm interested in the history of energy in the making of modern Japan, in particular in a country that imports 94 to 96 percent of its primary energy It's the world's third largest economy, but they're almost entirely dependent on the global movement of carbon energy in particular or the importation of uranium uh, from overseas. And so that puzzle is at the center of the book I'm writing right now.
1: Well, both of those projects are totally fascinating, and I'm going to look forward to talking with you about both of
0: them when they come out.
1: But in the meantime, Ian, thank you so much for making time. Thanks for a fabulous book, and it's really been a pleasure.
0: Oh, Carla, these these podcasts are wonderful. I listen to them while I, I make my uh, son's lunch for school every morning uh, when there's a new one. And I'm just thrilled to be able to join you. So thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for
0: joining us and we'll see you next time.